Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, I'm David Blight. Welcome to Slavery and Its Legacies, a podcast of the Gilda Lehrman Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition. Slavery and Its Legacies interviews visiting scholars, activists, and others about their contributions to the understanding of slavery, past and present, and its ongoing role in the development of the modern world. Hello, this is Thomas Thurston with the Gilder Lehrman Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition. Matthias Rodorf is a doctoral student at the Ludwig Maximilians University in Munich, Germany, uh, and his dissertation topic is the American Civil War and the Canadian Confederation in Canada and Great Britain, its representation, impacts, and repercussions in Liverpool, Halifax, and Montreal. Uh, Matthias, could you tell us a little more about what your dissertation covers? Well, Tom, thank you very much uh, for giving me the opportunity to talk about my project today. And my project in general is focusing on both the American Civil War and the Canadian Confederation. And I consider both events or both processes as transatlantic processes. And I want to find out how these as transatlantic processes were interacting and interfering in local spaces. And these local spaces I have selected are ports, because I consider ports, especially in the 1860s, that's the time when I, when my, you know, my project is focusing on, um, they, um, they experience uh, a big change, like in growth and population and trade relations, because especially of the railway uh, buildup and steamships. So what I'm looking at is how international transatlantic events are, you know, relating to uh, local spaces. And for that, I have chosen the Canadian Confederation and the American Civil War. And I want to find out, so what are the impacts? What are the repercussions? And also public representation, I mean, what people, especially through the press, are learning from it. Like, how is it communicated in public? Right. And uh, I should let people know, as I've kind of found out uh, from talking to you about this, that that during the time of the American Civil War, there's conversation going on between Great Britain and, uh, and Canada and Nova Scotia and uh, about confederation. Mm -hmm. uh, so yes. can you tell us a little about how, uh, how incidents in the Civil War are driving this conversation about confederation? Well, the American Civil War was a civil war but it had huge um, international impacts. And there are certain events that make clear, not just because of the Civil War, but within the British North American colonies, or British North America, as Canada was called before Confederation, that a new political organization and structure between these different provinces and colonies to the mother country are necessary. 
And the American Civil War was just the obvious example that this has to be done quickly. One incident, for example, was the Trent Affair of uh, fall 1861, when uh, Great Britain and the United States were on the brink of war, very close, and Canada would be then the, the battleground of that war. And uh, what made it um, then important for future confederation debates was who is going to defend these colonies? How should defense uh, be organized? And all the different Canadian uh, colonies uh, proved to be incapable doing that. And on the other hand, the British, regarding their imperial policy, especially closer to India, um, were adamant saying we defend the colonies, but the colonies also have to give their share. So the American Civil War was more and more becoming or making obvious what was all what already was obvious that it has to be new organized in political, economically uh, terms. Now, uh, currently, you, much of your research has been on on Nova Scotia and Halifax and uh, their uh, position regarding confederation. Uh, now, first of all, how did uh, Nova Scotia and some of the other uh, maritime provinces, how did they view uh, what at that time was considered Canada? So you mean like uh, Canada at that time was the United Province of Canada, what we know today um, Ontario and Quebec. So they, of course, they had some ties with them, like trade ties, economic ties, and uh, maybe family ties. But the Maritimes, and when I'm talking about the Maritimes, I'm talking about New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, and Prince Edward Island. They, um, for them, Canada, for the let's say for the political elite and also for the most for the main newspapers, Canada was something distinct, something foreign, something wily, something that they don't want to be part of. So for them, Canada was as foreign as maybe the United States, and even uh, in Nova Scotia, they they considered themselves closer to New England as than to Canada. So there were no real let's say, uh, emotional ties to these, uh, to the Canadians. In reading the newspapers in, in Nova Scotia, uh, I know that you've been paying attention to their reportage on uh, the American Civil War. Uh, how do they use this reportage to kind of uh, uh, make sense of themselves and how you know, how they position themselves vis-a-vis -vis, uh, Great Britain and, and that other Canada and uh, as well as uh, the United States? Well, the Civil War, because of, um, let's say, um, the telegraphs was, and they could close uh, closely watch it. They could get daily reports from the battlefield and they were shocked of, um, how bloody and how long that war endured and how savage it was fought. And the Civil War for, I can only say that now in general, because if you look at the different newspapers, you sometimes uh, 
uh, get many different uh, opinions and views and sometimes they change. So for them, the civil war was, the reason why the civil war broke out, there were several for them. First, they considered republicanism as a weak model for ruling. Another reason was the slavery and uh, the sectional crisis. So for many, the civil war, the outbreak of the civil war was not surprising at all. But most, for most of them, it was surprising how long and how bloody it was. And, um, and regarding the, um, the relationship to the United States that is then linked with Great Britain, in, in a very short time, the United States Army became very big, very professional, and there were many new weapons, especially the ironclad ships that were much more superior than, for example, the ships of the Royal Navy. And the ships of the Royal Navy, the Royal Navy in general, was the backbone of the defense of the British colonies in North America. So all that technology... Uh, all that advantage and technology, what the Americans now had, that professional army, was considered as a threat to Canadian independence or to the independence of the British North American colonies. But much more was the, um, the superiority in economy. The uh, economy of the North, of the United States, had a big boom because of the war and they were uh, they were very they needed raw materials from um, from the colonies in Canada so the economic uh, dependence to the United States was becoming more and more uh, obvious and that of course influenced the relationship with Great Britain like asking especially when Great Britain was then becoming more and more adamant, you have to take your part in the share of the cause. How should all this be developing in the next years? Uh, now, of course, uh, Nova Scotia, while it's looking at, uh, at the Civil War and, and, and talking about slavery, uh, uh, of course, it has its own uh, history of, of uh, black loyalists uh, and others coming, uh, other uh, African-Americans coming uh, into Nova Scotia, mm -hmm. uh, going back yeah. to the American Revolution. And uh, could you say a little about that history, uh, how, you know, how that works itself out? Well, there were, before the arrival of um, the loyalist refugees and the black loyalists, there were already some um, black Nova Scotians living in that province. Some of them were free, some of them were enslaved. So before the loyalists came, slavery was existing in Nova Scotia. But the arrival of the loyalists and with their enslaved people and with the free black loyalists, um, that was a major influx on the Nova Scotian society because of its numbers. We talk about uh, more than 3,000 free black loyalists 
And because of the um, Nova Scotian racial policy, they were in segregated uh, communities, segregated to the white communities. So now, for the first time, a major number of free blacks were living next to enslaved blacks. So for the black people in general, it became more and more apparent that to have black skin is not a reason to be enslaved. For the white communities, that arrival of thousands of free black people that also had the will to remain free and to be equal, equal to the white, that was, for many of them, it was considered as, an, as a threat. As a threat to their way of life, to their future, and especially they were seen as competitors. Competitors for farmland, for um, housing prices, for all the uh, aspects of daily life we um, are facing today as well. And you have to see it in the context as well. Nova Scotia at that time was scarcely populated because the Acadians a few decades before were deported, so the major part of the population was gone. And then tens of thousands of refugees, most of them whites, but also about 5,000 blacks, were coming to Nova Scotia during the winter time in a very short time and the government was incapable to take care of them all. So you have that problem that um, the, the, the soil of Nova Scotia is not providing enough food, you don't have enough houses and then um, and that's another reason why they, um, the black loyalists were regarded as a main threat to white living and of course because of its sheer numbers and of course because of the uh, racial attitudes, the uh, racist attitudes the Nova Scotian had. They regarded blacks as inferior and as unequal competitors. So it was not surprising at all that uh, black loyalists, although promised to have equal share of land and payment, didn't receive that as all, at, at all. Of course, the incidents that you're looking at are happening some 70, 80 years after this influx of black loyalists. Uh, at that time, how is the Nova Scotian press uh, uh, reporting on, on its black community? You mean before the Civil War or during? Well, uh, that before, immediately before and during, let's say. Well. Um, according, to, um, according to scholars like Armani Whitfield, um, black communities until then are segregated from white communities and Nova Scotian newspapers um, report on these communities but more in more like providing racist images that these communities are poor, there is uh, thieving, there are blacks in general, doesn't matter. Um, at that time there was no, there were no slaves anymore, but in general blacks were regarded as inferior, as unequal, um, they were regarded to be lazy, messy, that they thieve and that they are unorganized, that they are, to say it, uncivilized. And often you have them incidents like reporting that, but on the 
at the same time, on the other hand, and that's uh, what uh, is then re really interesting, uh, Nova Scotian newspapers are against the existence of slavery, against the peculiar institution of the United States. And especially with the fugitive slave law in 1850, until the outbreak of the Civil War, around 30,000 uh, fugitive slaves are arriving in Canada, regarding Canada as the promised land. Um, most of them are going to Ontario. Some of them arrive in New Brunswick and Nova Scotia. So newspapers in Nova Scotia are regarding the fugitive slave law as an outrage, as an un-British, uncivilized law, as they do regard slavery. But on the other hand, you find many newspaper articles in the 1840s and 1850s that um, are full with racist Im uh, images and what they don't do at all. They criticize the existence of slavery and the poor living conditions in the United States. And that is going further into the Civil War. So this maintains um, criticizing, criticizing slavery and the poor living conditions of the blacks. But there are no of the poor living conditions of black Nova Scotians in the communities, in the segregated communities in Nova Scotia during the 1860s. So this is like not happening. Black Nova Scotians, uh, as far as my uh, history, uh, as far as my research is now concerned, they do not really exist for most Nova Scotian newspapers. If there is an incident happening, it is reported some of them are commenting it, but um, they don't really exist. There's no broad debate or discussion about how living conditions uh, or daily life could be improved. Uh, do uh, Nova Scotians and Canadians in general see something like the future uh, slave law as uh, as uh, resulting as kind of uh, a threat to the kind of borders and sovereignty of, of, of Canada? Uh, do, I mean, do they critique it in that way? Is that it's driving yes, people into their country? Yes, exactly. I totally agree with that. They do. Uh -huh. um, they, in, in one way, they criticize the Fugitive Slave Act because Tens of thousands of refugees are arriving. They don't want them. They are Canadian abolitionist uh, societies in Nova Scotia, but the main one are in Toronto and uh, also with the main newspaper there, the Toronto Globe. They are advocating for emancipation, for, the, uh, for equality, and also like, um, you know, um, saying the, the, to the slaves in the South, come to Canada, it's the promised land, you have freedom here. But the majority of the, of the white population in Canada and in the Maritimes, uh, they don't want them. They see them, they regard them as a threat, they regard them as, un, as unwelcomed, as unequal, and the fugitive slave law is regarded uh, on the one hand as un-British, uncivilized, but also uh, as a threat to the social order of uh, Nova Scotia or Canada in general, especially more when more and more uh, are coming. 
and they are not provided, you know, they are not really provided um, by the government, not provided any shelter or food. That is done by black communities, black churches or abolitionist organizations. They do the work, but not the government. Well, that's, of course, very much the same in, in the North, uh, among uh, whites in the North, uh, where they may... Uh, oppose the institution of slavery, it's generally because they see it as a competitive uh, form of labor. Uh, and, and except for uh, a very few uh, abolitionists, uh, most uh, Northerners, e even opposing slavery, uh, have very entrenched racist attitudes, uh, not unlike yes. what you described mm -hmm. uh, in Canada. And it's, uh, uh, and it's just the very few who are uh, uh, fighting for uh, uh, abolition of slavery and e equality for, uh, uh, for black people. Uh, so that's, uh, in some ways, no surprise. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah. How do, how do the uh, Nova Scotians, I know you're focused generally on, on what's happening in Nova Scotia, how, how do they uh, uh, take this and argue about whether what it means to confederate with Canada or what it means to remain uh, 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 with closer ties to Great Britain. So you mean how the institution of slavery or fugitive slaves? Yes, I mean, but in the sense of how do they, I mean, I, I know that that might not be a major point in, in, their, uh, in, the, in their kind of argument about this, but mm -hmm. there's... Uh, do they kind of use the example of the United States to argue either pro or con uh, confederation? Because, of, of course, uh, the United States had, has, has its own union that is now kind of in shambles. And, mm -hmm. uh, and, and here is uh, Canada in the midst of the Civil War uh, discussing confederation with these different uh, uh, regions uh, of, of, of British America, of, of some forming some kind of confederation, and while at the same time uh, the U.S. Uh, experiment seems to be falling apart, do they make that uh, kind of, do they use that as an argument, either pro or con uh, uh, confederation? Well, first of all, maybe uh, uh, one uh, sentence uh, for the, uh, to the black uh, fugitives. Of course, many of them are aware of that um, Canada is not the promised land and they experience that. And yeah, racism is uh, widespread in, in the United States, like in the North, as it is in Canada. So there is not a big difference. But the main difference in the point of view of the black refugees is slavery is abolished. And they, if they reach Canadian soil, they are free forever. And Canadian newspapers, especially the abolitionist newspapers in Toronto, like The Globe, or Nova Scotian newspapers, and they're especially uh, religious newspapers, are pointing that out. Canada has no slavery and Great Britain in general has no slavery. Great Britain has first abolished the slave trade and then has abolished slavery by the Emancipation Act. And now 
And that's also very important in that um, British ships now are patrolling all over the world looking for illegal slave ships, especially from Africa via the Atlantic to North or South America. So there is a great, um, a great pride in that to be, to have abolished slavery. And that is connected with the identity or the sentiment to be British. And that is what they say the Americans are not. The Americans are un-British, they are uncivilized because of their republicanism and because of the institution of slavery and the Civil War is the proof for that, that they are un-British. And since Nova Scotians and accepting maybe the French Canadians, so like the, the, the provinces in Canada, and in British North America, I'm sorry, and uh, in the Maritimes consider themselves as British, let's say the political elite in most newspapers, they say that, um, that uh, a civil war like it happened in the United States could not really happen in, um, in British North America because the civil war was the cause of un-British sentiments of un-British laws and un-British behavior. And uh, of course you have sectional crisis in, uh, during the confederation debates as well and at the birth of confederation. But um, slavery, the civil war and all these issues were considered as American problems that will not affect like the minds of the colonists loyal to Great Britain, for example, in Nova Scotia and Halifax. Well, we've had you here for uh, September, and uh, we only have a, a, a week or so uh, that you'll be with us. Uh, uh, I know that you have. Where are you? Where are you on to now? What's the, what's the next uh, phase in your in your research and work? Well, I'm very thankful to be um, at the Gilda Lehmann Center to, de to do research there because um, you have a great library, especially in the books there. Um, there are many important books um, important to me, so I could, um, I could broaden my uh, knowledge on the issue of... Uh, let's say, the American slavery, the Civil War, and uh, Nova Scotian racism and the poor living conditions in uh, Nova Scotia. So that contrast, so that Nova Scotian newspapers on the one hand are criticizing the institution of slavery, but on the other hand are not debating at all on the living conditions in uh, the poor living conditions of black Nova Scotians. And that continues after the Civil War. And my project is also focusing after the time after the Civil War. And um, what I will do in the next weeks is uh, when um, in October I will be back in Halifax and at the Nova Scotia archives. With the knowledge I have now I will look for further uh, sources in that archive, especially on uh, black community organizations like the African Abolition Society that was founded in Halifax and on black churches like the Baptist Church. Because 
Of course you have racism in Nova Scotia, but you also have a strong, large population of black Nova Scotians in the 1860s and a strong black community there. And now I want to look to get a closer look on more sources of these black communities. So I get like a counterpart to the images and reports in the Nova Scotian newspapers and can examine that like uh, relating that, comparing that with the with the sources I find there and maybe the results of that. So Nova Scotian newspapers don't talk at all about living conditions of the black communities. Maybe the abolition organizations there or the black churches are talking about that. And maybe there are petitions to the assembly or to a newspaper. Maybe there are some, some letters or correspondence or whatever. I want to focus more on that because then I can use this as a counterpart. And my time here at the, the Gilda Lehmann Center was very helpful to widen my knowledge on, on espe especially the black communities in Nova Scotia. Well, I know I'm looking forward to hearing more about your research on the black community in Nova Scotia and what you uh, turn up. It's uh, something that, uh, that I know very little about and uh, it sounds exciting. It's been wonderful. Uh, having you at the center, and I want to wish you the best of luck with your uh, with all of your work and your career. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you very much, Tom. I am very happy that I could be at the Gilda Lehmann Center for this month. Thank you very much. Slavery and its Legacies is brought to you by the Gilda Lehrman Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition, a part of the Whitney and Betty McMillan Center for International and Area Studies at Yale University. Production support is provided by the Yale Broadcast Center. For more information about the center, its activities, and this podcast series, visit glc.yale.edu.